Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. I trust that you're all savoring and cherishing this time of worship this morning with Steve and Deb as it brings to a close a long season, about 12 years. It's terribly hard to see him go, um, but we pray in God's providence that we'll be reunited again soon, and uh, this won't be the last that we'll see of them. But they're very precious to us, and I do pray that we make the most of these uh, few moments that we have with them before they depart. Sometimes it's true you don't know what you have till it's gone, but it shows us again that we need to cherish what God gives to us and make the most of that time. Well, pray with me, if you will. Father, your church is a precious gift, and we must confess that we do so readily and uh, so flippantly take for granted the gift of the communion of saints. We just take for granted that each new day we'll see the continuation of things as they are, things as they have been. Even though we know that life is constantly full of changes, that nothing stays the same, we only have to look in the mirror to see that nothing stays the same. And yet somehow we we want to live as if all things will continue as they have. And I pray, Father, that the preciousness of the communion of saints would not be lost upon us, but that we would redeem the time, that we would make the most of those that you give to us, of our own responsibility to those around us, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would truly live faithfully as we consider Steve and Deb's departure, we were mindful of the legacy of, of faithfulness, of humility, of, of graciousness, of teachability, of devotion that they leave behind. And I pray, Father, that you would build on that, that it would bear fruit in us and through us, that by your design, the legacy of godliness that they have have manifested, would be true of all of us, that we would be faithful. Meet us, continue with us as we continue our worship. And Father, cause this burden of the Hebrews writer for his readers, that through all the distractions, through all the pressures, through all the persecution, through all that they were suffering, that they would never lose sight 
of the triumph of Jesus our Lord and the blessedness of being found in him. Truly, we can do all things in him who strengthens us. And I pray that we would be a faithful people, always looking to him. We ask this of you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we've been away from Hebrews for a few weeks now, but uh, last time as we entered into the, the chapter, chapter 11, the great faith chapter, we considered by way of introduction the writer's kind of general overview of what faith is and the way that it operates. And we, we saw that essentially what the writer is telling us is that faith is a simple way of, of in a sense, putting a label on this thing that is called the true, sincere, full, authentic living out of the relationship that we have with God in Christ. Faith is what it means to live authentically as a human being. It's not simply a mechanism or an appointed uh, thing that God has given to get us saved. It is what it means to live as God's image children. And after that introduction, then the writer begins to unfold uh, a lineage, a a whole uh, chorus of faithful individuals, obviously set within the Israelite history, being a Jew himself, writing to a Jewish audience, he takes and draws from this um, roll call of faith, if you will, this collection of faithful people from Israel's own history uh, as presented in the scriptures. It's very clear as we move through chapter 11 that the writer was very familiar with Israel's scriptures. And the way in which the story of God's intent for the world worked itself through from generation to generation through the faithfulness of God's people. And so he begins this roll call of faith, as it's often called, with Abel himself. Abel as his first example of a man of faith. And we might ask, well, why not Adam? Isn't Adam's faith, in a sense, implied by his comment uh, when God promises a seed, a restoring seed, who will come through Eve Adam names her Eve, recognizing based on God's promise that she is the mother of all the living. And while that's certainly true, and I can't be dogmatic about this, but I think that in terms of the scripture, Abel is the one who we first see explicitly shown to be uh, a man of faith in a way that, that is very concrete. And the writer uh, obviously draws this example uh, from what we see in Genesis chapter 4. The treatment of Abel together with his brother Cain is a very brief thing. Really the totality of, of Abel's life and therefore also of Abel's faith is really reduced down to one episode. An episode that sets him in contrast with his brother In drawing from that episode, and we'll read it here in a second, but what the writer is is doing is ultimately, again, thinking through this lens of what he will say after he addresses uh, Enoch as his second person. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 
that's kind of the lens through which he's thinking about Abel in this particular incident that he cites. And so when we take that statement of the writer and we again step back and recognize his basic thesis, which again is that faith is what it looks like to live a truly human life. What it is to actually commune with God in the truth as his image children. We can see from starting with Abel at least a few things that by way of introduction I'd like to kind of draw out as initial considerations before we get to the specific thing that he refers to here. The first is the relationship between faith and revelation. Why do I say that? The writer begins with Abel. Abel at the very beginning of the salvation history. Abel as standing along with his brother Cain as the very beginning of the creation on this side of the garden. The minute that the fall, the minute, as the fall happens, the consequence of the fall, the issue of alienation and exile, the very first thing that we see are two sons born in the context of the curse, operating in relation to this thing that we would call faith. And that, in my mind, again, brings up this idea of what is the relationship between faith and revelation? If the one who comes to God must believe that he is, faith obviously stands on this foundation of the God who is, the God who makes himself known. Faith has its object in the God who actually is, and it's utterly dependent on his self-disclosure. In the very beginning, faith, Adam's faith with God operated in the context of a person-to-person interaction, person-to-person communion. There was no scripture, there were no prophets, There were no writings, there were no utterances brought through men. Person-to-person communion was what defined that relationship in the beginning. And that person-to-person sort of interaction continued afterwards, but in a way that was constantly moving at a greater distance and with less frequency. We'll see even as we read the account in Genesis 4 that the writer's drawing from, there is God speaking to these men. But we know as time goes on, there is a movement away from that person-to-person direct interaction with God, and certainly even a growing of a distance between them. You see... Immediately, if we take nothing else from Genesis 4, that what he's drawing from, we see that the immediate consequence of the fall and the expulsion from Eden was now relationship with God becomes a matter of mediated distance. You can go back and look at the God with us series where I treat all of that way back when. But the text is wanting you to see that the immediate intimacy between God and man has now been compromised. It's been forfeited. Now relationship with God, interaction with God, even when God is directly speaking, still functions as a matter of distance. It operates in the context of alienation and exile. 
the creational curse. Not just Adam and Eve exiled, but in a very real way, creational exile. That's what the curse was all about. And so that mediation first takes, is, is, uh, operates in the context of worship that is mediated through sacrificial instruments. Something by which men can still come to God and worship him. And later that mediation begins to take more of a human component with Noah, with Moses, with the children of Israel, with the prophets, and most overarchingly with Abraham himself, the man who is the grand supreme mediator, right? The one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. The fall brought the collapse, the end of the intimacy, the immediacy of communion with God that men had known. But ultimately, all of those forms of communion converge in the Messiah himself, or those forms of mediation, whether sacrifice, whether human mediation, all of those converge in the Messiah himself. He is the one who brings that reconciling, that restoring, even as Steve read from Colossians this morning. By his blood, reconciling all things to God, such that in him all things consist. Well, Abel was not, he was as close as any person born under the curse could be to the pre-fall world. He was a son of Adam. He was as close to that world as anyone could be. He was as close to that intimacy that his father and mother had enjoyed with God. And certainly he would have known of that even in interacting with his father and his mother as he grew. But nonetheless, he was born into a cursed creation with its alienation, with its exile. Hence, his mediated worship, his and Cain's mediated worship. That's what we see as we look at chapter 4. So my point then, first of all, with respect to faith and revelation, is that faith depends on God's self-disclosure. But the fact that the writer goes all the way back to Abel in establishing this issue of faith shows that faith does not depend on consummate revelation. It does not depend on absolute understanding or absolute knowledge. It doesn't even depend on a formal covenant structure. It is simply this right relation with the God who has made himself known at the level at which he has made himself known. It pertains to the God who is, but it doesn't depend on an absolute, complete, exhaustive understanding or disclosure. If it did, then you could not ascribe faith to Abel at the very beginning of the salvation history. What Abel knew, at least as far as the scriptures tell us, is that God had promised a seed to his mother who would one day restore all things. In that very vague, shadowy way, as Jesus said of Abraham himself, he saw my day and rejoiced. The second thing then related and flowing out of that is is how we understand faith in relation to the salvation history. If the writer can point to Abel as an example of faith for the purpose of nurturing and reinforcing, strengthening the faith of his own readers, first century Christians, 
and even himself, then he obviously saw a continuity, a sameness in Abel's faith. Or it makes no sense to say, look to his faith to encourage your own. And again, that's implied just in the fact that faith speaks to the authentic human relationship with God. In that sense, it's always been the same. The writer was assuming simply by bringing Abel into the discussion that his faith was one and the same with the faith to which he called his readers. But that doesn't imply that the scope or the content of Abel's faith was the same as these readers or ours or any other person throughout the progress of the salvation history. What is unchanged is Faith's essential nature and the way it operates, not its scope and its content. In other words, the progress of revelation means that there is a progress in faith as well. And I don't want to belabor this, but this is important in addressing the errors of continuity and discontinuity relating to faith. It's often associated Um, you know, with both of our major systems, dispensationalism and covenant theology. We can't call David a Christian because he was a man of faith. But we also can't say that before Christ came, there was no such thing as faith. The writer directs his readers and himself as first century Christians to draw on the faith of this cloud of witnesses to strengthen and nurture their own faith. At the same time, you have Paul speaking of faith in contrast to Torah and saying that faith had not come until the Messiah came in Galatians 3. Before faith came, we were under the custody of the law as Israelites. Waiting for the promise of the faith that was to come. And so Torah became our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Well, in a certain sense, Paul says that faith did not come until Christ came. We have to be able to reconcile that with what the writer of Hebrews is implying, which is that faith has existed from the very beginning. And that's the sense in which there's the distinction. Faith in the God who is has now become faith in the God who is fully disclosed, fully known, fully perceived in Jesus the Messiah. So faith has reached its consummate form just as the revelation of God has reached its consummate form. And then the last thing I want to mention as an initial um, observation is the relationship between faith and righteousness, because that comes out in what the writer says here today. And, And specifically, what I want to say is that starting with Abel in this roll call of faith, the writer is establishing this truth, which we get more out of Uh, uh, directly out of the Genesis account, that faith has always been the basis of acceptance with God. 
Not in the sense that, again, we tend to want to think, oh, that's right, I've never been saved by works. No one's ever been saved by works. They've been saved by faith. But in the sense that, again, first and foremost, faith is a way of expressing the reality of authentic human relationship with God, human communion with God. That's always been the case. That's always been the case. That was true of David and his faithfulness. That was true of Abraham and his faithfulness. That was true of Abel and his faithfulness. The writer, though, tells us that directly. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what was true in the first century was also true at the time of Abel. At the beginning of human history, it's also been true in every generation since. Human beings gain approval with God through their faith. And I'll elaborate on that as we move on. So again, in summary then, the writer begins by reminding his readers that the faith of which he has spoken, the faith that he has introduced, that he calls them to, is the faith expressed by their faithful forefathers. There is a continuity there. Its content has expanded, its scope has expanded with the progress of revelation and the salvation history, now having its object in the Messiah himself. But it's the same in terms of its essence, its quality, and its operation. Faith has always bound men to God because faith is what it looks like for people to live truly as image children with God. I said last time, faith doesn't end with the eternal state. Faith isn't just a sin issue so that we can get saved. If that were the case, then faith would have no pertinence to Jesus. And in fact, sometimes Christians think Jesus wasn't a man of faith, that Jesus didn't express himself in this kind of faithfulness, but he did. It's through his faithfulness that God has accomplished this great triumph. So then in terms specifically of Abel, those are the three things that I wanted to set out first. But in terms of, of Abel's faith itself, the writer really treats it here in terms of three aspects. What demonstrated that Abel was a man of faith, how that was affirmed, and what is the testimony associated with it. So reading from verse 1, the writer again says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith brings the future into the present. It owns as substantial, as actually extant, that which God has promised, that which is hoped for. And also it's the conviction of things not seen. It enables us to perceive as real and actual that which our senses can't detect. By it, the men of old gained approval, beginning with Abel. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of that which is visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. He still speaks. Well, the, the thing that specifically the writer is referring to is the offering associated with Cain and Abel back in Genesis chapter 4. So I'd like for you to flip back there 
Because this is what the writer's drawing from, and, and Genesis 4 has to be the context in which we understand the points that he's making about Abel. We can't take that in a vacuum. This is the only episode that we see as significant as the writer indicates Abel was. This is the only thing we know about Abel. An offering and his murder. And even Cain's significance falls off very quickly in terms of the amount of space that the text gives to him. But the first thing to note about this instance, this incident that the writer of Hebrews cites, is that this is our first glimpse, as I said, into the post-fall world. When we look at the offering of Cain and Abel, we have to look at it through the lens of this is our first view of the post-fall world. A massive shift has taken place. And this episode was recorded because of the way that it testifies to the fundamental change in the divine human relationship. As I said, interaction with God, communion with God, has now become a matter of mediated distance in the context of alienation and exile. You don't see any evidence of this sort of worship in these offerings of Cain and Abel, which are very similar. They both involve bringing an offering to God of the fruit of their labor. You see nothing like that before this. Worship has changed. And the divine human alienation that lies back of this new way of worshiping God, of encountering God, also has resulted, as this episode shows us, in human-to-human alienation. Peace at all levels, shalom at all levels within the created order has been fractured. And God even made that clear when he said, the earth that would eagerly, abundantly, effortlessly yield up its fruitfulness to you now has become your enemy. And it's by the sweat of your brow that you will bring forth a living from it. You will fight it, it will fight you, it will consume you, and in the end it will devour you. You came from the earth, you will return to the earth. Enmity, conflict, strife, division, alienation, exile, not only from God, but exile within the creation. Alienation now is the definition of the world as we know it. And we all know that to be the case. So the emphasis of the the episode is not on the offerings as such. Oh, this was a proper offering. This was an improper offering. And I say that up front because that's where we tend to go when we don't situate this in the proper uh, arena or perspective. We say, okay, Abel brought a good offering. Cain brought a bad offering. That was the problem. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. The issue with the offerings, as we'll see, even as we read this, because they are described, but the issue with them is what they say about the men who brought them. And this respective faith of these two men in relation to God and how uh, how that contrasts between the faith or faithfulness of Cain and faith and faithfulness of Abel. So the focus is on their respective faith. But as that faith of Abel 
faith, quote unquote, of Cain, how that created the hostility between them. That difference was what established the hostility that resulted in the murder of Abel. And that hostility continues from that point on throughout the whole of the salvation history until the restoration that has begun in the Messiah himself. What we see coming out of this episode in Genesis 4 is an explanation and an interpretation of the world as we see it and know it. This isn't just about two offerings. This is a way of expressing what's come because of the fall, what the world looks like, what relationship with God now looks like, how men relate to God, how men relate to one another. And that hostility between Cain and Abel has effectively partitioned the world into two opposing camps. Those who have faith as God knows it and those who don't have faith. And those two camps, those two human communities are perpetually at odds with one another. So this episode then in in, in broad terms shows us, it provides the transition between the creational blessedness portrayed in Eden and the world under the curse, the world that Jesus came to restore. If we don't understand the nature of the curse and the problem, then we don't understand what Jesus has accomplished by conquering the curse. As I said, this episode explains and interprets to us the world that we perceive around us. And that, in that sense, it's the appropriate starting point for the writer's discussion of faith, just as it's the scripture starting point for the discussion of what it is to live in faith. So chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 1, it says, Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife. This is after expulsion from the garden. This is the beginning of human existence in the context of the curse. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child from the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Hence the offerings they brought were appropriate to their vocation. And it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, then know that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, to conquer you, to master you, to subdue you. But you, you must conquer it. You must master it. Well, that's the episode, again, that the writer draws from. And that's all we know of Abel other than the fact that he dies. The writer puts it this way, the Hebrews writer, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. And right away, again, our minds go, okay, a better sacrifice. How was it better? 
And if you read commentaries and you look at, at, at treatments of this particular passage, you see people say, oh, well, it was because Abel's was an animal sacrifice and Cain's was a plant sacrifice. And plants aren't suitable for a sacrifice. Particularly in our day, it's become very popular to view this as a blood issue. That because Cain didn't offer a blood sacrifice, God was not pleased with it. But all of that is anachronistic in the sense that it reads back into the Genesis account later definitions of sacrifice and structures of sacrifice. There's absolutely no indication at this point in Genesis of any sort of prescription for blood sacrifices or for sin offerings or definition on offerings. All of that is reading something into the text that isn't there. Even the idea that, that, again, Abel had adhered to God's sacrificial prescription, Cain did not. The text doesn't say that. It gives no indication that that's the case. The perspective that we bring is, is absolutely critical to this. And as I said already, the issue is the men, not their offerings. The issue is the men, not their offerings. There's no indication God had given a prescription either with respect to the manner of the sacrifice, the time of the sacrifice, the content of the sacrifice. The NES says, in the course of time. It'd be like in our fairy tales, once upon a time. It's not saying at the appointed time when God said, bring me a sacrifice, this is what they brought. Their own intrinsic sense of of this God who they are to worship. This is how they bring to God of their yield, volitionally, freely. There's no prescription behind this. The description of the offerings that the the writer uh, of Genesis gives is to give us a window into the offerers. The description of the offerings gives us a window into the offerers. That's what the, why the writer even says, by faith, the Hebrews writer, by faith, Abel offered. It's not about the offering. It's about the man behind the offering. So that's the thing that the writer of Hebrews points to, to say, Abel was a man of faith. Look to this man of faith. And that faith is affirmed by God himself. And if you look again at the Genesis account, it shows that God's assessment, God's approval, God's approbation, if you will, focused on the men, not on what they offered. With Abel and his offering, God was pleased. With Cain and his offering, God was not pleased. And when, Cain con- or when God confronts Cain, he says, if you do well, if you do well. But if not, sin is crouching at the door. God received Abel's offering because of who he was, not because his offering fits some sacrificial prescription or even because it was of a higher quality. And the text does describe the differences in their offerings in terms of Abel bringing the firstlings and the fatlings of his flock, if you will, the first and the best. Whereas of Cain, it simply says, he brought of the fruit of the field. And people often focus on that and say, okay, that's the issue. That's the issue. He brings the best, he doesn't bring the best. But even that 
description is to look at what's in the hearts of those men as they bring their own free volitional offering of worship to God as they approach him. What it says about their own faith. And so Abel was righteous, not in the sense that he was different than his murderous, angry brother. He, he didn't share that same murderous bent. He didn't share the same sort of angry disposition. Therefore, he was righteous. He brought a better offering. We can't reduce it down to that. We miss the point if we do. The issue is, again, his faith, his right relation to God in contrast to his brother. Even as Cain's own reaction of resentment and anger betrayed really who was the concern in his offering. Who was really the issue of concern in Cain's offering? It was Cain. It wasn't God. What we often call faith, and and here's the point I'm trying to make, what we so often call faith really is, is simply a mechanism to manipulate God to get what we want. Our approach to God is ultimately about us. When it's humble, when it's pious, when it's seeking. The quote that Steve read, we're much more urgent in our petitions of need than we are in our praise. Why? Because it's about us. God said to Israel, when you enter the land and you inhabit cities that you didn't build, and you drink from wells that you didn't dig, and you reap the fruit of crops that you didn't plant, and I give all this to you, then be careful lest your heart turn from me. And you say, see what I've got, see what I've done, see what is mine. You forget the Lord your God. Cain's sacrifice reflected a heart that he wasn't saying, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't recognize the need to worship God. I, you know, just like Abel, both men were under the curse. Both men lived in this context of alienation from God as the whole created order was alienated. Both of them recognized that approach to God had to be a mediated distance, but they had different hearts in that. The affirmation of his faith was the issue, not the affirmation of his sacrifice. And the writer says that that faith of Abel produced a testimony that continues to testify. He, though dead, continues through his faith to testify still. This is, no, this is a difficult passage in the sense that it's somewhat vague and, and, again, variously interpreted. Some people say, well, this is referring to the fact that Abel's faith allowed him to be included in the scriptures. That's how he continues to testify, because of his presence in the scriptural record. But Cain also has a presence in the scriptural record. Others want to tie this uh, to later in chapter 4, where, where God says, What have you done to your brother? What have you done with your brother? His blood cries out to me from the ground. And they say that's the sense in which Abel continues to testify. His blood is crying out 
from the ground. But the writer's point here is about the testimony of his faith, not his blood crying out to be vindicated. It's not, it's not a testimony calling for vindication. It's a testimony of faithfulness by which the faith of those who come after him will be nurtured and reinforced and strengthened. So I think the point is of, of it is this. Abel's faith exhibited in his own eager, wholehearted, volitional, not mandated, volitional, eager, sincere worship, even while feeling very powerfully as the, as the very beginning of this hum, humanity existing in the context of the curse, feeling very powerfully the sting of exile, of distance, of alienation of hardship in the world. Even in the context of that, his eager, wholehearted, devoted approach to God, his seeking out of God, is an inspirational example for all the faithful who succeed him, including these Hebrews who are suffering. Well, I want to conclude drawing off of that idea of of this heritage of faith, this abiding testimony of faith. That as chapter 11 throughout speaks of this idea of heritage, that which is an inheritance, that which we we inherit, these forefathers are the heritage, our heritage. We stand on the shoulders of these individuals of faith. But The flip side of that is equally true, that heritage also implies legacy. Sometimes those ideas are confused. But heritage more looks back to what comes to us, our inheritance. Legacy speaks to what we leave behind. It looks forward. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, it, it's, whether you can say it's universally true, I guess I would tend to say that, but the problem with stating things in absolutes is you're never quite sure what you're not taking into account that would, would make your statement uh, hyperbolic or, or unjustified. But it seems to me that all people live with a kind of inner compulsion for a legacy, to leave something behind. Something beyond their death. And there are many things, I think, that drive that. The angst of mortality. I die, I'm gone, that's the end of it. And within... 40 or 50 years, no one will ever know that I lived unless they stumble on my gravestone. There's an angst associated with that, the desire to leave something that continues on. The the sense that we have, certainly as we get older, the need for a meaningful life. You know, you often hear people say, well, when you talk to someone on his deathbed, nobody ever says, I wish I would have worked more. I wish I would have made more money. I wish I would have had more stuff. What their regrets are tied to is what it really looks like to to leave this world having lived a meaningful life. 
Even the pride of personal significance. I need to leave my mark on history. It's the reason that the pharaohs built the pyramids. It's the reason that powerful men leave monuments to themselves. People donate money to a university to have their name put on a building, right? The need for personal significance. And I think all people sense, all people seek continuance after death. It's the reason that regardless of the specific religious or spiritual orientation, one of the most ancient features of human existence is the belief in the inherent immortality of the soul. The scripture doesn't teach that, but that's been a part of human culture forever. The soul lives on. The soul is inherently immortal. This need to have something continue beyond death. And even those who don't believe in an afterlife, who don't believe in the immortality of the soul, still seek, have this compulsion towards a continuing presence or existence through what they leave behind. Contributions, monuments, philanthropic achievements, personal accomplishments, even a righteous heritage. Many Jews don't believe in life after death. They believe that death is the end. And there are reasons from the Old Testament that they argue that. But it might shock us to think that that even practicing Jews who believe the scriptures, many of them don't believe that there's anything beyond our mortal death. And I remember talking to a man one time and, and saying to him, well, then what's the point of Torah faithfulness? What's, what's the point of your integrity and, and holding fast to God's Torah? And his answer was a legacy. You live this sort of a life, and that legacy now lives on in your children, in your accomplishments, in what you, you leave the world a better place in some sense. There's this need for a legacy, and I think it reflects God's own design for his human creatures. Not that we would leave a material, philosophical, or a biological uh, legacy in terms of our offspring or whatever it happens to be, but being grafted into this heritage of faith. What we leave behind is the legacy of an authentic human existence as the children of God. That that heritage, that legacy that we leave behind consists again in a life of true communion with the living God. Now bound up in sharing in Jesus the Messiah. That's how Hebrews 11 looks backward as well as forward. If it calls us to look back and draw on these faithful who have gone before, and in that way to be strengthened and nurtured and and given the resolve of our own faith and faithfulness, it's under what end? That we should be grafted into that throng. 
right? This doesn't just look in one direction. The idea is that drawing on that heritage of faith and faithfulness, we ourselves will run our race. This is where we're going in chapter 12. We will run with endurance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And in that way, we will also take our place within that cloud of witnesses. We become part of the heritage of those who are to come. We leave a legacy. Abel was the beginning of that cloud of witnesses, and he continues to speak even though he's long dead. He continue, his faith, his life, his faithfulness, even though we have just a little glimmer of it, it continues to speak even to the present day. But his testimony is unto a specific end, just to deal with him. But in terms of what the writer's getting at here, Abel calls all who come after him to follow his example run their race with endurance, with the promise that he himself held on to that they too will become part of that throng of witnesses. And in that way, they will also continue after death to testify of themselves. For the sake of the faith and the triumph of those who will come after them. And so here's my question in closing. What legacy are we establishing because we're leaving one whether we think we are or not. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, what is the legacy that we are establishing? Is it a monument to ourselves? You say, well, I, you know, I'm not looking to have a pyramid built or you know, I'm not looking to have a building named after me. But what are we trying to accomplish in this life? What is the legacy that we seek, whether it's even unconscious to us? Is it to build a business? Is it to have something ascribed to us? Some enduring accomplishment that we'll be remembered for? What is the legacy that we will leave behind? Is it our family's well-being? I think many people, the orientation of, of, of their, they don't maybe think of it in terms of legacy, but they want to make sure that when they're gone, their family will be secure. Their family will be provided for. Their family will have a measure of ease. The legacy that they are establishing is well-being of their family members. Do we even think in terms of a legacy? I don't know how many people do. I think often, even as Christians, we think only in terms of holding on until we get out of here and get to go to heaven. So far from thinking about a legacy, we're thinking about simply gritting our teeth and holding on until we can get out of here. Because it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, right? We just want to get out of here. If we do think in terms of a legacy, do we think of it in spiritual terms? 
And if we do think of it in spiritual terms, do we think of it in terms of, again, a spiritualizing of natural legacy, a spiritual monument? You know, you, you, I remember going through a new members class in a church years ago, and the new members class was all about the legacy of that particular organization. Founding pastor, next pastor, pictures on the wall. You can say that's a spiritual legacy, but is that what we're about? Is that what we want? Even if we seek a spiritual legacy in the sense of of the spiritual well-being of those who come after us? Is it limited to our family? Is it limited to the immediate circle of people that we know and care about? Well, I want my kids to be saved. I want to make sure my kids are right with the Lord. I want to make sure all the people that I care about, that this gets sorted out for them. That's where my labors are going. And I'm not saying any of that is wrong per se. My point is this, when we look at what Hebrews 11 is showing us, the legacy that God intends for us pertains to all of the faithful who will come after us, the vast majority of whom we will never know. Abel doesn't know you. He doesn't know me. We won't even be remembered in 50 years. How does this legacy then move from generation? How do we continue to testify generation after generation, forever. It's not because we labor to see our kids get saved, or a mother, or a sister, or a brother, whatever it happens to be, or a neighbor. You see, it's a much bigger issue than that. The legacy God intends pertains to all of the faithful who will come after us, those who are truly and everlastingly our family and loved ones. Jesus, your mother, your brothers, they're out there, they want to talk to you. Who's my mother? Who are my brethren? Behold my mother, my brethren. All who do the will of God are my mother and my brethren. I'm not going to put a date on the creation, but it's been more than a few thousand years since Abel walked the earth, and he continues to testify. His legacy lives on. So, saints, our legacy pertains to multitudes who will never know us, who we will never know in this life. And my point is this. We really have no idea of the enduring impact that our lives have for good or for ill. Even if we think we're just focusing on our building our business or you know, leaving money for our kids or whatever it happens to be, there is still something wider than that, whether we know it or not or think it or not or care about it or not. We have no idea of the enduring impact that we have. It can be for good. It can be for ill. But our lives in Christ, our faith and our faithfulness, our lives in Christ are not irrelevant. We might make them so, but they're not. And God doesn't view them as irrelevant
And by taking this whole thing, saints, what we've done is we've reduced this down to God's not happy with me. I've broken his law. Jesus kept the, and I'm caricaturing or simplifying, making this kind of simplistic. But the issue is to get right with God. That's the end of the discussion. Now I go off to heaven. And we don't think that the lives that we live matter. It's just about hanging on till we can get out of here. We all leave a legacy. And this doesn't mean that God calls us to be perfect. It doesn't mean that he calls us to do great things. That's part of this personal, natural way of thinking about legacy. I've got to do great things for God. I've got to be the president of this seminary, or I've got to, you know, have my name on the church wall, or I've got to, whatever, you know, great things for God. See, see the, you know, the African heathen come to faith. I'm going to go do that. This legacy is the result of the faithfulness of life day by day. Do you think when Abel brought this offering to God out of the eagerness and affection of his heart that he was thinking, wow, people are going to be talking about this in however many thousands of years. I'm sure he didn't give it a single thought. All of these individuals, as we read through Hebrews 11, we're going to see that their legacy is the simplicity and apparent insignificance of a faithful life day by day by day by day. It's not doing great things. It's not running off to Africa to save the heathen. And that looks different for each one of us at a given point in time. We can't compare ourselves with the next person and say, well, I'm, but we can't do it negatively or positively. Well, you know, I have no legacy if I'm not Paul. Or to say, well, that was Paul. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to be faithful like that. Laboring day and night, you know, just this, this constant uh, urgency about, about his faithfulness. Well, that was him. I have a business to build or, you know, I'm, I'm retired now. Come on, give me a break. Or I don't have time for that. God doesn't require that of me. Saints, if we can look back and draw on all of these who have gone before, we have to recognize that within a very few years, we're going to be a part of that list. Aren't we? Even if it's not inscripturated. Because those we influence, influence others, and they influence others, and they influence others. And it goes from generation to generation. And a handful of human beings, simply by loving the Messiah and being relentless in their faithfulness to him, turn the Roman world upside down in one generation. For all the challenges they had of transportation and communication, they turned the world upside down. And I'm not trying to make any of us feel guilty. I'm actually trying to have us step back and and have a sense of the great privilege that we have. We are a part of this cloud of witnesses. 
And what a delightful thing it will be someday to perhaps, and I don't know how it would work, but to perhaps have somebody come to us and say, you know what, your life in the mid, in the early 21st century, here, you know, assuming things go on for another thousand years or whatever, somebody comes and says, through this whole legacy, you were a part of this heritage by which the Lord helped me to stand. We don't know the impact of our lives But God does, and he takes it very seriously, and we should too. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for this purpose that you have put in place, that yes, you accomplish all of your designs, but you have condescended in the most marvelous way to do it through human weakness and frailty, You determined to accomplish all of this cosmic triumph through human weakness. And we see that in the cross of the Messiah himself. Who'd have thought that that faithfulness that was not even noticed beyond the confines of Israel itself, and for the most part was despised within the confines and indicted within the confines of Israel itself. Even that horrific death alongside two other malefactors, who'd have thought, who'd have thought the legacy that would come from that? Father, I pray that you would help us to step back and realize how truly significant we are in your purposes. We are a part of that roll call of faith. And I I providentially have been so reminded of that this past week and even thinking about Steve and Deb and their departure from us, the legacy that they leave us. Have they accomplished monumental things that have enabled their names to be scrawled all over Christian periodicals or written on the sides of buildings? No. But they have shown us what tenacious, humble, persevering faithfulness looks like. They have loved us. They have served us. They have continued steadfast in good times, in bad times, in difficulty, in times of settledness. And what they leave behind will continue to testify. It will continue to enrich us. It will continue through us, according to your goodness and mercy to us, it will continue to enrich those who come after us. Father, what a glorious thing we are a part of. I pray that this would transform the way we think about the insignificant things of our days. The kindness that we extend, as Jesus said, even a cup of cold water offered in his name is his ministration. We think that so much doesn't matter. We separate the secular and the sacred. We compartmentalize issues and we say, well, I don't have time or I won't do this or here's what I can give or whatever it happens to be. 
I pray that we would see that there is no secular. There is life in Christ. And even in the little things that are insignificant, the profound effect that they can have. You don't call us to turn the world upside down. You turn the world upside down through the simple, seemingly insignificant of faithful men and women who love you, who proclaim the excellencies of this triumph in the Messiah. That's all you ask of us. May we prove faithful with our calling. Father, all these things, all these things we entrust to you. Draw us near, turn our heads back and our hearts back where they need to be. May we be faithful in our own time, in our own circumstances, with the challenges that meet us. For the sake of those who will come after us. Do this work of grace that Christ would be exalted in the church and in the world. For his sake we pray. Amen.